Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Sophie Galaise is the Managing Director of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, who this week announced their Season 1, or Program 1, for 2021. Sophie, welcome to the program, and I take it the decision to launch your 2021 program in two parts, a Season 1, later to be followed by a Season 2, suggests that you're very hopeful that programming opportunities will shift as uh, the months pass and you'll be able to return to a pre-COVID normal in terms of the size of orchestra and audience alike. I think you're totally correct, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. We are very excited and it was a cathartic effort or exercise to work on our coming back to life. Uh, So we're excited. We've announced our season from January to June 21. And yes, it's because we are hoping that the uh, restriction will ease and that we might be able to return to some different type of programming. But meanwhile, I'm extremely proud of the work of the team. It took a lot of effort from everyone to go post-changing all the time uh, to, to come to this uh, the end of this exercise. So I'm proud of the fact that it's been a collaborative effort. The, we have a Matt Hoy, head of artistic programming, a, a great team behind him, uh, the marketing team. Everyone has come together to dream of how to respond to uh, COVID safe environment, all the restrictions, and to help Melbourne heal, return to life with great music, because as you know, the power of music is important. Important. So we are excited to be back. We are looking forward to welcoming audiences to the concert hall and outdoor. We've adapted by uh, working on our format. So, for example, concerts will be shorter, around uh, one-hour programs. There will be two programs per night. So, for example, uh, six o'clock, and then another concert at eight thirty. So it will allow us to have a deep cleaning of uh, the venue and everything before. We welcome customers for either the second half of their evening or new customer. Uh, we've uh, created programs that are so there's always two programs per evening. There's a logic and a team to these evening. Amazing artists. Uh, we are celebrating the amazing talents in Australia. So we have created a season around great. Australian artists, soloists, conductors, composers. It's also our way to help a lot of our colleagues in an industry that has been suffering and is still suffering. Uh, We are all, as you know, uh, home and not doing what we do best, but playing music together. So it's been uh, quite a, a journey for the MSO and many of our colleagues. So we're very excited to come back. We will be in the ball, the Cinemeyer Music Ball with our our free concerts in February, but we are also working with, uh, and we have had great collaboration from our colleagues at the Arts Centre and the MRC to, to come maybe more than three times in the, the Meyer Bowl for more concerts under the star, music under the star, there's nothing better. So we've worked on, um, of course, respecting, uh, so making it a COVID-safe environment, so there's a lot less seats available because 
terms of uh, the, the four square rules, social distancing on stage in the hall. We have been working very hard to have a very safe journey for our customer to come in the hall. And, and um, so we are, for example, going paperless because it's one of the COVID restrictions is to try to go paperless. So we um, will have, um, we will send in a our program notes. Uh, people will be able to download them with a QR code in the concert hall, and so we won't have any printed programs. But that's that's you know adapting to a new reality. Uh, and just to, to jump also... in there, sorry to cut yes, you off yes, there, Sophie. Of in terms of the, <laughs> the the free concerts, for example, that are kicking off the 2021 program, by having them outdoors, it means that audiences can be spaced further apart, making the audiences themselves feel reassured and safe. Does it also mean that you have to space out your the members of the orchestra across the stage more broadly so that they're not rubbing shoulders? And will that actually impact on the number of orchestra members, the number of musicians you can have on stage? Will you have to look at smaller sizes of orchestra and performers for at least the first few months of 2021? Uh, You're actually totally correct. So the uh, social distancing applies on stage too. So, for example, in Hemeral, we can only fit 57 musicians on stage at this point. But we're hoping and crossing fingers that restriction might ease. We have seen in other states go from four square meter to two square meter, which would allow us to put a larger number of musicians on stage. And we have built our program so that in some cases we have the exact number of musicians on stage to deliver the program. And in some other cases we could add some more, for example, uh, strings and see a full orchestra in front of us. The um, stage at the Cinema Bowl is a large stage and would allow allow us to have a little bit more musician on stage. So this is, <laughs> we've tried to adapt, as I said, an exercise in adaptability. Uh, but also, I think I'm, I'm very Please, I'm proud of the quality of the program that we're presenting. It's amazing artists. We have embraced our reconciliation journey uh, with First Nation. Uh, this year, we have uh, Deborah uh, Cheatham as our composer in residence, and she's and unfortunately, her season with us has been... Uh, <laughs> curtailed um, and she we have discussed with Deborah having a, a longer journey with her and we will be announcing that in coming weeks and uh, meanwhile we will be performing some of her amazing work Paul Grabowski will be our composer in, resi- in residence next year and he has asked um, the Wilford brothers from uh, the Arnhem land to join us for <laughs> a beautiful piece that will be uh, presented at the start of the season. We will have probably our youngest son, Christian Lee, 13-year-old uh, young violinist, amazing talent now, world-renowned, and, and so on. Um, we are extremely lucky to count on uh, the work of Benjamin Norty, our principal conductor in residence. Ben has been close to the orchestra in this period of dark times, and uh, so we're happy to see him 
conduct the orchestra, and we're actually all uh, so excited and looking forward to it. The other thing I'm really, really excited about is that this has given us the opportunity. As you know, the MSO is one of the great orchestra in Australia, but also around the world. So we have amazing musicians who are extremely talented and can, can hold their own as a soloist on stage. So we've commissioned pieces from for the talent of our musicians. So we will see our principal horn, we will see principal trumpet, we will see our corps anglais uh, perform pieces that are being written for them. So we, I hope we will see the personalities of these amazing musicians uh, through these beautiful pieces. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm excited because this is an opportunity that we uh, would have not had had in the past as much as um, as this year. So it's it's a year also where we have, I believe, nearly half of our guest artists, conductors, composers are female. We have a huge um, diversity of styles, personalities. So it's it's very exciting. And of course, because we're a symphony, uh, there's a lot of our well-beloved classics. So we will be performing the music, the music of uh, Brahms, Schumann, Beethoven, Stravinsky, Dvorak, uh, like the New World Symphony, and so so many beautiful pieces. I'm so so looking forward to it. I, I, uh, it will be a moment of um, of high emotions and. <laughs> That I can uh, absolutely when, imagine. The uh, I suspect that the very first live performance, whatever art form it is that I attend, there will probably be tears just to be amongst an audience again to see art being created live on stage. So for everybody at the MSO, I'm sure the, the first return to live performance will be equally powerful. The other important thing I think to note, Sophie, is the orchestra may be called the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, but you're not just playing in Melbourne, i.e. in the city of Melbourne uh, next year. Yes, there will be performances at the Maya Music Bowl at Melbourne Town Hall at Melbourne Recital Centre, but you're also going out to Blackwood Hall at Monash, I understand, and also down to Geelong as well. So making sure that when live performance does return with the MSO in 2021, that the performances are accessible to a broad range of Victorians, not just people living in or close to the, the central CBD. Uh, you're totally correct. And in, in Richard, in these uh, first six months, we have plan something new, a suburban tour, where we will go uh, on the, I would say, the, the outer circle of Melbourne, uh, places where we have not been in a long time. We're looking forward to amazing days, uh, and that's in January. We have also, in 2020, had to, unfortunately, we were unable to deliver our regional tour. We go usually, uh, we visit 25 towns around um, the state. We were supposed to be uh, going in um, regions that had been affected by bushfires. So it will be a comeback and we'll be there next year. And we have some of these activities already planned for the first six months of the season. So that's, that's, we're going to be busy, but positively busy and <laughs> very happy. For more information about the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's program for 2021 Part 1, which covers the first six months of the year, 
jump online, www.mso.com.au. 2021 program part two will be announced later next year. Again, as we've heard, as we all continually adapt to the new guidelines around public safety and safety for performers as well as the COVID restrictions begin to ease and live performances return to our stages, concert halls, auditoriums, parks and other venues. So mso.com.au for details. I've been chatting with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's Managing Director, Sophie Gillespie. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us on Triple R this morning. Thank you, Richard. Have a lovely day. Jenny M. Thomas is from the Australian band Bush Gothic, who, uh, amongst other things, including putting a couple of albums out and so forth, have been collaborating with a Cardiff-based artist, Angharad Jenkins, and creating music internationally. And Jenny, I understand, were you originally supposed to go to Wales to collaborate literally and to perform in Wales before COVID happened? No, no, it came out of the blue in a little panic as the Estedford thought, oh my goodness, how are we going to put our festival into a computer? And they, <laughs> they contacted us, but we will go the next time we can. Okay, so it's been clearly a fairly fruitful collaboration. You've reinterpreted two old Welsh folk songs and released them with accompanying film clips. And this is an opportunity not only for you to collaborate, but also a chance, I understand, for you to explore your Welsh heritage as well. That's right, yeah. We were initially asked to put together a 45-minute festival set, and then which we sort of just went a little bit blank out. We thought, oh, how are we going to do to do that from two different homes so we really just jumped on the opportunity to create something with the idea here we all are stuck in our homes just with the idea that work is more fun than fun which um i think noel coward said that and anyway, let's just get as much juice out of this as we can so on the computer what's good is recorded music and you know beautiful images so we just kept working and working at at that and surprisingly formed a really great connection with someone over Zoom, Angara Jenkins in Wales. It, Zoom has created some really intriguing opportunities. It's also led to exhaustion sometimes as well. <laughs> Was that a factor at all? Because staring at screens rather than having a conversation in real life. I mean, digital um, is real, but was that a factor? Did it slow down the creative process having to collaborate via Zoom, for example? No, it didn't because we only just would talk on about an hour every two weeks on Zoom and the rest was just purely audio and emails and throwing to and from ideas. So it was a real balm, actually. It was all about just picking up the instrument and going deeper, actually, into the idea of... I mean, I found it a really perfect time for thinking (laughs) now and so it was great to think about, well... We've been asked to explore Wales and Australia and usually you would find a Welsh migrant who's come here in the past and look at their story. But actually it felt a lot more interesting to start to consider how long can a culture endure within inside of us. So the drummer in the band, Chris Lewis, he also is from Welsh heritage, as I am. So is there some kind of unconquerable connection within you or is that just nostalgia? And who's going to know? So so let's just write music anyway. <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about folk music in Australia. You studied at the VCA. You've performed with the, the Circus Oz Band as well. At what point did you decide to embrace folk music? And was there a particular catalyst for that? Or was it more just a slow progression sliding across musical styles until you settled on something that has clearly deeply resonated? There was a very particular 
time when I decided to do Australian folk music, but it is something that I was born into. I was lucky enough to be born into a family that did actually sit around campfires and play guitar. <laughs> and part of my Irish heritage is storytelling and songs. But yes, you're right. I was a classical musician and I hung out with jazz and classical musicians. And so how do you tell them, actually, now I'm going to play folk music? But I heard on the radio one time, I heard an English folk musician called Jim Murray singing an English folk song and I had spent years going to different festivals in Australia listening to Australians singing American music and Irish music and hearing this English fella who's quite young singing his own songs I just thought oh an Australian has to do this I'll have to write music for an Australian to sing this because you know I wasn't going to do it I was a fiddle player and it took me such a long time I had to perform it overseas first before I sort of even dared to tell anybody that I was going to do Australian folk music, but it was very strong within me that, yeah, this is this is an interesting thing to do. I mean, the, the tradition of, of folk music in Australia is something that I find fascinating. I was exposed to that at a young age as a, as a kid in the 70s uh, through bands like the Bushwhackers and so forth. And there's mm. certainly been a long tradition of convict heritage songs and sea shanties and Irish folk tradition feeding into the, the Australian folk tradition. But exploring those Welsh and English elements of the Australian folk tradition feel less established and uh, and a road less travelled, which would also suggest that for you there have been very fertile, creative roads to explore as well. Absolutely fertile. There's this, yeah, and I mean, folk music, it's about class and it's about power and it's also about feminism and I love to go in there and see how you can get the feminist angle because, you know, it's pretty blokey, the folk, well, it has been certainly in the 70s, <laughs> a really blokey area, but it's this, you know, as a white Australian who's born into a kind of debt like we all are then I like to look back on the songs from that time and say well what happened you know what happened when my Irish ancestors they'd been fighting oppression for 800 years and then they come here what do they do when they get here you know how do they get land same with the Welsh they were subjugated by the English as well and then what do they do when they get here and what can we feel when we sing those songs so I don't have any solutions but I certainly know that folk music is an invitation in, in a way to lose yourself, to escape that constant self-analysis of singer-songwriters that goes on and just to surrender to being one of billions of humans, billions of idiotic humans, <laughs> and sort of surrender into that and see what bubbles up. Does it also provide perhaps a sense of connection with country that as a white Australian you may not necessarily feel with the landscape here? Yeah, I wonder about that because when, when, I, when I sing Irish or Welsh songs I actually feel something which is called haraeth, you know, a Welsh word meaning longing for homeland. But when I don't sing them, when, I, when I'm here and maybe I sing say a Paul Kelly song, then I will really feel more connected. So I actually feel really connected to being Australian and that came up during this whole Welsh collaboration because I got in trouble for <laughs> how I was singing the Welsh words. It wasn't exactly perfect. And it was, you know, I had an Australian accent and some of the vowels were wrong and so that came up as a real issue. I had to re-record the vocals as to, well, you know, are we not allowed to be... Like how intrinsically Australian is that, is my voice. 
you can hear it's obviously very, it, it gets all muddy and interesting and complicated, those issues. <laughs> Thinking that getting your tongue around Welsh is a particular challenge, having as a, a kid growing up reading a lot of Celtic-inspired fantasy, for example, and trying to myself to get my head around the pronunciations of Welsh in which the letter F will become a V, a double D has its own sound. It's a complex language to come at relatively cold. I mean, so talk to us about that process of learning to not just to sing in Welsh, but to embrace it, particularly taking on the criticism of your accent as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it came at exactly the same time when I'd started to read stories and look into Indigenous populations in Nam in Melbourne. And I'd learned that there wasn't really a way that I was going to be able to approach looking at Indigenous languages because of how much they'd been decimated here. So right after I was quite affected by that knowledge, I was then given a very political stance on the Welsh language, which had also tried to be stamped out by the English. It was forbidden. So Welsh language is very political, the resurgence of it. So it was made clear to me that it, it had to be perfect. So, But here I was with all my gigs cancelled at home. So I actually love learning languages. So it, it was just about sitting down and doing it every day like art is. You know, if you, if you want to do it well, you just have to keep doing it. You just have to turn up and do it. And eventually, you know what, the language, even though it looks like someone's thrown it into the air and all the letters have just scattered down, it makes a lot more sense than English. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me, given what a hybrid language English is with pronunciations from Norman and Anglo-Saxon and we've borrowed words from the French and Italy and India and so much more. Uh, But if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jenny M. Thomas from the band Bush Gothic about their collaboration with a Welsh artist, Angharad Jenkins, and the songs that have evolved from that through a commission with the Welsh I Steadford. We're going to hear one of those tracks in a moment. I'm just curious to know before we listen to the track, Jenny, you've created these two songs. What comes next? Do you want to dive more deeply into recording a full album of Welsh folk, for example? Maybe. We've got two more songs on the go at the moment. One is a love song and one is a hate song. It's just one of those terribly sexist, misogynist old songs that we're twisting around. So we're going to keep going with it. And, well, with art, you never really know where it leads. So let's see what next year brings, shall we? But we'll go to, we'll play at the National Celtic Festival in Victoria, in Port Arlington. These songs, it's a fabulous festival. And then hopefully we'll go to Wales. Great. Well, fingers crossed. I look forward to finding out more. But can you maybe introduce the track Sospen Vach for us, please? Here is a song called Little Sospen. It's a domestic song, but you can pronounce it Sospen Vach. It is literally about a saucepan? <laughs> yeah, it's about a saucepan. Well, it's, it's a tragic story about a housewife and all the things that keep going wrong in the house. And just like we all know, sometimes domesticity can be a bit nuts. Let's give it a whirl. And uh, Jenny, thanks so much for joining us on Triple R this morning. Thanks for having me. As we know, the live music industry here in Melbourne and indeed Victoria has been hard hit by the pandemic. And Victoria's Minister for Creative Industries joins me on the line to talk about the state government support for the sector. Danny Pearson, MP, is the new Minister for Creative Industries, appointed earlier this month. Minister, thank you for joining us on the program. Oh, call me Danny Rich. Great to be here. Great to catch up. Great to catch up indeed, Danny. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation was to introduce you 
more broadly to the Melbourne art sector and the creative industries generally. You and I served together on the board of the Melbourne Fringe Festival for several years. So I know that you have a connection to the arts and a passion for the arts. But what do you see as being some of the things that connect you to the creative industries and will mean that you will be able to understand the sector's needs? Yeah, well, look, thanks, thanks, Rich. And look, great to be on your program, and uh, particularly as being a Triple R subscriber. Look, I'm delighted to have this portfolio and uh, to be given this amazing responsibility. For me, I guess creative industries means many things to me. I mean, I really enjoyed working with you on the fringe all those years ago. I got to meet some amazing people at that time, people who viewed the world differently to me, who had a different approach to life or had different observations about life. And it made me a richer and better person. You know, I think that in life's travels, you don't want to be too narrow and constricted. And I found engaging with you and the other board members and with the artists at the Fringe for those years, it was a really incredibly enriching experience. And look, I've been really lucky. I mean, I, when I was younger, loved going to pubs um, out in the eastern suburb to see tribute bands and live music was just a, a really big part of my early years growing up. I've always gone to the NGV and as a kid, I used to go from time to time and now I take my kids are there as well. So that's been uh, terrific. My wife and I, we go to the comedy festival each year. It's always fantastic. And, you know, I think that creative industries, it, it forms so much of my identity, but it also forms so much of many people's identity in this great city, in this great state. You know, you can't imagine what our lives would be like, and particularly after what's been a really terrible year, but for the impact that creative industries has had on all of us. And, and we've just, we're, we're blessed with this abundance of talent and abundance of fantastic institutions. One of the reasons that I wanted to mention the live music industry specifically at the top of our interview is that because gigs have just not been possible to be staged, it's certainly not at least in the traditional way of a sweaty room with people packed tight to see a band. So we know that it's not just bands that have been suffering, but live music venues and then all the support staff that work there as well. One of the things that the Victorian State Government has done specifically to support the live music sector, for example, is $19 million of support for the industry, including music workers, venues, businesses, as well as for events and online initiatives. We've seen all up, I believe, it's a total of $90 million that the Victorian government have given to and offered to the creative industries to help get them through the pandemic. That support has been hugely valuable, but what do you see as the next most important steps to support the creative industries as we begin, hopefully, to emerge from this hugely challenging year? Yeah, look, I really want to acknowledge the great work that Martin Foley, my predecessor, has done, not just this year, but for many years beforehand. He's made a fantastic contribution to the sector and he was instrumental in securing his funding for the sector. And it's vital that we support the sector. Could you imagine what, as dreadful as this year has been, could you imagine what it would be like to have gone through this year without the streaming services, without the music that you can listen to or that you can stream, without books, without film? You know, like, it's just... We just It's been a really bad year, but it would just be so much worse, but for the creative industries. And so this level of support has been really warranted and it's been really important that we do this because you know, I want to see creative industries get through the other side of this and that we can hit the ground running in 2021. One of the things we had been working on, and Martin had really driven, had been the revival of the creative state and that second iteration of that strategy. And so I'm really pleased today to announce that we are rebooting this work and I want to hear the voices of 
those people who are part of this industry, who have lived and breathed this industry and who have been badly impacted by this pandemic. And so the Engage Victoria website is now got a survey that's live. And I want to hear voices that sometimes aren't heard, aren't listened to. You know, I want to hear young people, you know, those aged between 15 and 25. I want to make sure that our First Nations people have a voice in relation to the development of this strategy. That the LGBTIQA plus and also their place at the table to express their views on what this strategy should look like. I'm really honoured to have this opportunity. And I've not got, Richard, I've not got a day to lose. And I want to work really hard. And I want to be the sector's great enabler. I want to find ways in which I can get the sector to be the very best the sector can be and to make sure individuals have the opportunity to achieve their potential and to come out of this dreadful year by having the opportunity of doing great things in 2021 and beyond. The strategy will play a really important role because it will guide where we allocate resources and it will guide our strategic focus and intent. I've got ideas on what I want to see done, but I want to work in partnership and in collaboration with the sector and with your listeners in order to achieve the things that we all want to achieve because we've got such a wonderful sector, such a strong and resilient sector with some amazing cultural institutions. So the creative state strategy, which will look at the next four-year strategy and plan to strengthen and develop the creative industries in Victoria, to have your say into that strategy and its development through a survey that Danny has just announced, engage.vic.gov.au forward slash creative hyphen strategy. I'll give out that URL again at the end of the show and I'll push it out on social media as well. Now, Danny, you mentioned your predecessor, Martin Foley, the previous Minister for Creative Industries. He was, I have to say in my 20 plus years of working in the sector, probably the most hands-on, consultative and collaborative arts minister, creative industries minister I've interacted with, and that includes interstate and around the country as well. How do you see yourself working with the sector? Do you hope or intend to be as consultative and collaborative as Martin was? Yeah, absolutely, because I can't do this alone. In order to be the very best creative industries minister I can be, I need to work in harmony and in collaboration with the sector. And again, you, you, know, you go back to those board meetings we had, Rich, at the Fringe Festival. It was always about people bringing forward their ideas and then trying to think about well, what's the best way to, to make these ideas to become a reality. It never works when you've got people issuing orders from on high and saying, well, this is how I view the world to be, therefore it shall be that. I've got a real deep appreciation for the entrepreneurship, for the insightfulness of people in the sector, for the passion and for the commitment that that your listeners have for these areas and for their craft. And I respect that. And I respect the fact that when you live and breathe the creative industries like you have for decades, you've got your own insights and you've got your own thoughts and observations about what you would want government to do. And I think for me, it's about trying to connect with smart, engaged, passionate people and finding ways where we can make their ideas become reality and that we can work together constructively and collaboratively. You know, I learned a lot at Melbourne Fringe and I was a better person the day I got off that board than when I started. And a lot of it came down to having the respect and having the appreciation for people who were different to me and who had a different lived experience and really valuing that and appreciating that and finding ways in which you can then harness that and think, well, how can we be better? And how, how can we be that respectful, tolerant, engaging, collaborative society? So for me, I think that's what I want to do. And I really look forward to 
continuing to appear on your program on a regular basis if you'll have me because I want to work with the sector and I, and I want to hear your ideas and I, I want us to be the best we can be. You know, I want us to... This has been such a dreadful, dreadful year. You know, I suppose the challenge is how can we be better as a society, as a community and as a sector in 2022 than we are now? And, and that's probably a challenge I'm setting myself, but, but I know I've got to work closely with the sector in order to achieve those things. If you've just tuned in, my guest is Danny Pearson, MP, the Minister for Creative Industries here in Victoria, who was appointed to the portfolio earlier this month. Danny, you were just talking about the importance of collaboration. How do you see yourself collaborating with your federal counterpart, Paul Fletcher, MP, particularly given the fact that the federal government's $250 million support package for the arts has not yet even begun to flow to the sector where it's needed? I want to be the sector's advocate in Canberra. I think I've got a responsibility, I've got an obligation, but I've also got the opportunity opportunity to try and be your voice to the federal government and to try and find ways in which I can lobby on your behalf to get the funds that Victoria is entitled to and the sector is entitled to in order for the sector to be able to do the things it wants to achieve. Now, I can't guarantee you how successful I'll be. I can't guarantee the outcome, but I can tell you this right now. I'll be working every day on behalf of this great sector with my colleagues in Victoria and with the federal government in order to try and get the very best outcome for the sector. So, look, I haven't had the opportunity of meeting with the federal minister yet, but I look forward to do so. And I'll be the sector's advocate when it comes to engaging with the federal government. Fantastic. Danny, just one final quick question before I let you go. Obviously, we're all wanting to see galleries, theatres, concert halls, pubs, live music venues, etc. reopen. When can we possibly expect that? Do you have any idea of what the roadmap looks like moving forward? Yeah, well, look, the Premier has indicated he'll be making some comments in the coming days. And every step we've been guided by the science on these things and we watch the daily case numbers. I think it's almost become a Melbourne ritual to see what the numbers are. It would have been nice to have had the number at, at zero or it's today, but uh, look, the Premier will be making some further comments around that. I absolutely want to see our great cultural institutions and our fantastic bars and pubs open as soon as we possibly can in a COVID-safe way. You know, I know the NGV Triennial, for example, that's going to open at least digitally on the 19th of December and will run through till the 18th of April, which I can't wait for. I think it's going to be amazing. But look, we're guided by the data, we're guided by the case numbers. The Premier will have more to say about this on on Sunday. I am also pleased though that we have been able to get pre-production for Film Victoria will start on, on Monday. So we have been able to get you know, a few you know, really positive outcomes like that, but probably we'll have more to say and I'll continue to advocate on behalf of the sector at every opportunity. As I said, Rich, I do not intend to waste a day or squander this great opportunity of being the Minister for Creative Industries because it is such a huge honour. There are some significant responsibilities and obligations, but I'm really looking forward to working with, with you, your listeners and the sector over the coming days and weeks and months. Danny Pearson, Minister for Creative Industries, thank you very much for joining us on the program. Great. Thanks, Rich. Catch you soon, mate. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 